this introducing this concept of him as a shepherd or the idea of what a shepherd does for the sheep. Of course, when we got to the end of that passage, as so many times in the Gospel of John, the people didn't understand what he was talking about because they're thinking from the physical and they didn't really understand this analogy or this parable that he was sharing. So the passage that we're looking at today is a carryover from that where Jesus begins to explain to them exactly what he was talking about and what he said, what, what he said and what it meant. The idea is he is the good shepherd, he is the gate, and we're going to see how all that comes together in our passage today. But last week, if you remember, we highlighted the role of a shepherd, and what a shepherd does for the sheep is he literally protects them. Um, We showed some uh, pictures last week of a sheep pen in the first century, and it's basically these rocks that had, uh, sometimes they would build it out of a cave and kind of create a little fence, but when we talk about the gate, or the door of the sheep pen, it's literally just an opening. There isn't anything physically there because whenever they would bring the sheep in at night and put them in there, the shepherd himself would lay in that threshold and he became the door. Sometimes it would just be leaning up against the rock wall that was behind him. Sometimes it was literally, if he was sleeping, he would make a pallet and he would lay right there in that threshold because the sheep, being the timid creatures that they are, would not cross him And anything that would want to come in to harm the sheep would have to go through him first. Now, Jesus did say that there were those who were not the shepherd, who didn't come in the right way. They would scale the walls or drop in from behind the cave because they did not actually have that access. They were not legitimate. The sheep were scared of them because the sheep didn't know them. They were strangers. Those are all the different things that we talked about. So that role of the good shepherd is really important. And understanding what the shepherd does for the sheep was really important as well. He's the one that provides protection for them as the door, the gate. Not only that, but he's the one who calls them out in the morning after the long night and takes them out to pasture. So whenever they hear him begin to sing his song, they know his voice. And only those who know him that are his sheep would come out of that pen. And they would begin to follow him as he would lead them down the road outside the village to the open pastures and let them feed. So he was also their provider vision he was also their peace they felt comfortable around him whenever he kept singing his song as they were out in pasture as long as they heard that voice they were at peace because they knew they could kind of eat freely they didn't have to worry about what was going on because he was there and they had this community with him they knew his voice he knew them by name those are the things that Jesus told us last week so the main point is that Jesus is the way to all of those things okay what things are we talking about community peace provision pasture protection he is the only way he's the gate he's the door he's the good shepherd without him none of those things are truly possible what we mean is not that you can't ever gain a sense of protection in this world because you know maybe you buy an alarm system or you carry a gun or whatever it may be you have this sense of protection but ultimately Jesus is talking on another plane than what we typically think of and that again is reiterated by this whole passage because Jesus is having to remind them you're thinking from this worldly perspective from a physical perspective I'm speaking from a spiritual one and one thing is clear as the shepherd Jesus has this very personal relationship with his sheep, those who are his. And it's so much so that those who are really his will not only recognize his voice, but they always respond to hearing that voice by following him. Okay? So that's it. They recognize the voice of their shepherd, and their response to hearing the voice is following him. 
So with that being the context that's flowing into our passage today, let's begin to look at our passage, break it up a little bit, look at it a few verses at a time, and kind of break down what we have here. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So this section begins with that very familiar phrase that we find throughout the Gospel of John and even in other Gospels, um, truly, truly, I say to you. The words literally in the Greek are amen, amen. So let this be true. Know that this is true. Listen to what I have to say. This is important. This is truth. The Gospel truth, I'm giving this to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. And if you'll notice, the focus changes here from the last section was the responsibility of the leaders, okay? Um, the ones that were in charge that we were supposed to be doing what they weren't doing. Jesus being the good shepherd, the shepherd does what he is supposed to do. Now in this section, it focuses on the security of the door, the security that that door is supposed to provide. This section is obviously connected to the section that we studied last week because of that whole theme of security. It was introduced to us last week, continues on to our passage this week. And there are those who wish to do harm to the sheep. We saw that last week. They are thieves and robbers. They're the ones that scale the wall or drop in from behind the cave. They're the ones that come in from those other avenues because they're not legitimate shepherds. They can't come in through the door. So when we understand those people, the thieves and the robbers, we understand their perspective as well. Their perspective is they don't have the sheep's best interest in mind. They're not there to protect them. They're there to take advantage of them. They're not there to provide something for the sheep. They're there to take the sheep as a provision for themselves. That is their mentality. This is why the sheep need a good shepherd, because they're helpless. I mean, we talked about last week how sheep are probably the only animals in the world that you can't introduce into the wild because they would never survive. Last week we talked about how uh, one author actually thinks that sheep are the greatest argument against evolution because there's no way they would have ever made it without man being there watching them and protecting them because they have no defense mechanisms. They don't have claws. They don't bite anything. They can't run off and hide. They have no camouflage. They don't have any posturing. They don't bark. They don't do anything. They basically just ba, which is basically saying, please don't eat me. And so they always need someone to protect them. Okay? And so that's the picture. That's why they're such a great example of humanity. Because we are literally like sheep. And, and we need a good shepherd because there are so many of darkness, of evil, those influences that seek to devour us, that seek to kill us, to destroy us, like the passage tells us today. But that good shepherd, we need that. We need someone who knows us, who loves us, who takes care of us. The sheep need someone who can protect them from all those threats that exist out there, from all those people who wish to do us harm. Jesus becomes that entity. What happens is Jesus brings wholeness through the provision of security, through his deliverance, through uh, one of the themes of the Gospel of John, the light that drives away the darkness. So verse 10 actually reminds us here that Jesus doesn't want to just provide life for us, he wants to provide life to this extreme level. 
He wants to provide life that is an abundant life. Now, that's very important for us to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, what exactly does that mean? What's the difference in life and abundant life? Is life just kind of having what you need and abundant life having more than what you need? Is life eating three meals a day is abundant life eating three meals a day with snacks in between and always having a dessert? I mean, what's the difference in those two things? What is abundance? Well, first of all, the word abundantly carries this connotation of a provision that goes way beyond what a person actually needs. So in other words, when we talk about an abundance, we're talking about this provision that goes well beyond what we feel like we need. Now, there's, there's a caveat to this because we always, again, think in the physical, Jesus is talking in the spiritual. So think about this word abundantly, above and beyond what is necessary. This is directly connected to the picture that has been set up for us through verse 9, in which the sheep go in through the gate. In that gate, they find security. They're led to open pastures through that gate where there is provision for them. There, there isn't this necessarily this abundance of things, it's an abundance that flows through security and peace. You see that? So in other words, we can have things in this life, but we don't necessarily have peace and security that go with those things. So when Jesus is talking about life abundantly, he's talking about a life where we enjoy the things that we have, relationships that we have, and the pleasures of life that God has afforded us, but we afford them in the context of peace and security. Why? Because of our relationship with God. We know that the good things that God has given to us, no one can ever take away because they are the gifts that have been given to us from him. And those gifts are mainly spiritual. Those are gifts of security and peace despite what our circumstances are. There's this vision that um, we have an eternity with him despite the difficulties that we may have in this life. It's this reminder to all of us that as difficult as this life may be, life is very short and eternity lasts forever. Those are the things that he's drawing our attention to here. So it's not an abundance of things. It's an abundance of what flows out of eternity. It's not about material things. It's about contentment with who we are spiritually. It's a spiritual piece that he's talking about. Last week, we even talked about Psalm 23, and I just want to remind us, because it connects in with what we're talking about again today, when you look at Psalm 23, uh, one of the things we pointed out last week is when you pay attention to the pronouns, that's what becomes very amazing about the way that whole psalm progresses, because it starts off with David noting what God has done for him and the good things that God intended for him. So he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But he's talking about God in third person. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, he restores my soul. Um, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his sake. And then it gets to this point where David cognizantly realizes that he's made choices in his life that have led him in a different direction, even though I walk through the valley. So again, God didn't lead him there. He doesn't say, even when he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil even there. Why? Because he's with me. And, and it's amazing because at that point, he changes from he to you. 
he changes from third person to, to first person. So he's not talking about God anymore. He's talking to God. You lead me. You prepare before me in the presence of my enemies, a table. You're the one who protects me with your rod and your staff. So what he knows about God to be true becomes real to him and grows in his relationship in walking through that darkness. That's important for us to understand because we will all make choices in this life or someone will make choices that affect us that will drive us into those dark places where we will walk through, literally, the valley of the shadow of death. And it's important for us to know that even there, there can be provision. That even there, there can be this sense of God taking care of us and and protecting us as we walk through those difficult times. And then the beauty of Psalm 23 is that David's perspective of life even begins to change because he goes from, you know, walking through the valley of the shadow of death where God provides for him and protects him. And he says that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, all of a sudden he realizes that the things that he needs more than anything is goodness and mercy. He doesn't need things. He doesn't need wealth. He doesn't need prosperity. He needs goodness and mercy. And he realizes that if he keeps his relationship with God strong, goodness and mercy will follow him. If he keeps his eyes on the good shepherd, he keeps listening to him, he can follow in those things. And the things that follow him is goodness and mercy. And then the key to Psalm 23 is that David's life, his perspective of life has changed. He says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord How long? So he's talking about eternity there. He's not talking about, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord until I die, until I go to be with my fathers in the grave. He said, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. So David's mind is that he starts with the physical. He understands that if I follow what God has for me, God only has good intentions for me. God never leads me into the darkness. That happens because of my choices. It happens because of other people's choices. It happens because we live in this world of darkness. But even there, I can depend on God. He doesn't abandon in me he's there he will protect me he will walk me through those difficult times and you know what above everything else i have the promise that forever and ever and ever i will dwell in the presence of the lord because i've heard my good shepherd and i'm following him that's the beauty of the good shepherd and being the sheep that's important for us to realize because eternity is really what jesus is hitting at here You know, it's so easy for us to get distracted from eternity. We come to a place like this, and we talk about eternity all the time. We talk about um, uh, living for eternity. We talk about eternal life that we have through Jesus. We talk about getting saved and having the promise of being in heaven when we die. But here's the reality. We talk about those things, but we don't live out there a lot of times as if those things are reality. We live as if somehow this world is going to afford us our greatest investment. That somehow our identity and our value is found in the things that we have and the things that we're able to do. And a lot of times we live life with eternity being this distant kind of reality that we just don't have to deal with until the doctor tells me, you only got so much time to live. I don't ever have to deal with it until I have to go to someone's funeral and I come face to face with death. That's the only times we really engage with this idea of eternity. But the word tells us that we should live every day in light of eternity. That the choices that we make, with the money that we have, with the time that we have, the resources, that all those things should be used in light of eternity. 
uh, I've told you before this example, but it bears being repeated because it's such a good one. Um, uh, Francis Chan used it one time when he was um, giving one of his uh, talks. And he had this rope that went through the whole stage, like a, a rope that you would tie off a boat with, one of those really big, like, seaman-type uh, ropes. And he brings it out, and it goes through the whole stage, and it winds through there, and it piles up in certain areas like that and comes out there. And it, comes, and it comes to this one part of the platform, and at the very end of the rope, he pulls it up, and it has a little piece of red tape on it, okay, just a small little piece of red tape. And what he said was, this rope represents your life. He said, this is who you are. This is your existence. And really, he says, it doesn't even really speak to it because we are creatures that will live forever and ever and ever. And he says, this little red piece right here represents your life on earth. And he said, this is a small part of everything that you are and your whole existence and how long you will live. And yet, we make most all of our decisions based on this small aspect of who we are. And we live ignorant of what we really are, and that is eternal beings that are going to live forever and ever, not here, but in eternity, in a spiritual realm. So if you really believe that, and I realize some of you don't. Some people don't believe that. You know what? I just have a hard time grasping that, and that's okay. I pray that God would bring you to that understanding that there's something bigger than this life. But for those of you that say that you embrace it, the question is, do you live in light of it? Or is everything that you think about God and yourself and your worth and your value based on that little bitty piece of who you actually are? That's what Jesus is drawing our attention to here. In this process, we have to learn to trust the good shepherd is going to meet the needs that we have. Look how he continues in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this right here is huge, and it bears for us to look at what Jesus is saying there and kind of connect it back to what he's already said. In verse 11, we have another one of these I am statements. Previously, he was I am the gate. Here we have I am the good shepherd. So the word good there is very important for us to pay attention to. The word good means, and it's translated thus throughout several different uh, translations of the Bible, authentic. I am the authentic shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the genuine shepherd. But it also can be translated, I am the true shepherd. Now that's important for us because that really hits at what Jesus has been talking about. Because remember, there are these burglars and there's these robbers that come. There are those who come and, and want to shepherd the sheep for their own benefit. 
But those are not true shepherds. The true shepherd is the one who lays his life down for them. The true shepherd are the ones that have the best interest of the sheep in mind. Now, this really fits with what John has already said numerous times throughout his gospel. If you remember, John has already said in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus is the true light. In chapter 4, 23, true worshipers worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. Verse uh, 32 of chapter 6, Jesus is the true bread. Chapter, six, or chapter 8, verse 16, he is the true judgment. We're going to see in chapter 15, verse 1, he's the true vine. In verse uh, 3 of chapter 17, he is the true God. In verse 35 of chapter 19, he is the true witness. So there is this theme throughout the gospel of John that he wants us to understand that there are true true realities and there are these false realities and the true realities are always found and caught up in the character and the person of Jesus. Jesus then goes on and makes a comparison between the good shepherd and those that he calls hired hands. Now the shepherd here literally has skin in the game literally. I mean he lays down his life for the sheep and the picture there is the hired hands run as soon as danger appears. Now, I want to use an illustration. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it's something we can relate to. There was a shooting not too long ago in Florida at a school. Do you remember the controversy that kind of surrounded? There was a uh, security officer there that was a part of the school, and he heard the shooting. They called, and he ran away from the shooting. Do you remember that? So he heard the gunshots. He heard the calls for help, and he went in another direction, and he offered some excuses for that and then said that it wasn't exactly what happened. And I don't know what the truth is of what happened there. But the point is this. There's a difference when someone is paid $20, $25 an hour, <coughs> to be a security guard or to watch over something versus someone who has a child in that building. And they're going to react differently. Someone who could cognitively say, you know what, I only get paid $20 to $25 an hour, and I have all these other interests that are outside of here. If I run into that building where there is gunfire, I might lose my life, and it's not worth $20 to $25 an hour. That's someone who's thinking about their jobs in the term of their own benefit right? What I'm getting out of this, what I'm getting paid for what I'm going to have to give up. And whenever that happens, they're always going to flee. They're going to run. Why? Because it's not worth it to them. Okay? They were only there for what they could get out of it, not what they had to contribute to it. But someone who has a child inside of there, they're going to react differently. At the first sound of the gunshots, they're running into that building. They're looking. They've got their weapon drawn, and they're going to do whatever it takes. If there's a child in the way, and they see someone shooting that way, and they begin to turn that direction, that person is going to pull that child behind them. Why? They see their job very differently. They have a vested interest in the protection of those children. That's what Jesus is talking about. There are people in this life that so many of us are letting them shepherd us and they have no vested interest in who we are. Some of them are these self-help books that we read. Some of them are Oprah or whatever your favorite channel is that you read. They tell you how to live your life and this is the way you should make decisions. They have no vested interest in you. That doesn't benefit them however you turn out. The thing is, you watch their show, and you buy their stuff, and that's the benefit that they have. But when crisis comes in your situation, Oprah's not going to be there. When crisis comes, whoever that person is you're reading the self-help book, they're not going to be there. 
don't you want a shepherd that has a vested interest in your success, a vested interest in your well-being, a vested, a vested interest in your development as a person? That is only one. There's only one genuine, true shepherd, and it's Jesus. That's what he wants us to know. And there is this temptation for all of us to listen to these voices in this world and listen to what they say about who we are and where our best life comes from and where our value can be found. And if we're listening to those voices, we're listening to the false shepherds. We need to come back to the true shepherd. We need to hear what he says about us, what he says is true. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting for us here. That's what we have to gravitate to, what we have to embrace if we truly want to follow after him. Now, at first, this section may seem confusing, but because it seems like the metaphors that Jesus uses throughout here, they keep changing. Because at one point, there's this emphasis on the door or the gate, and Jesus is the door. And then all of a sudden, there's this emphasis on the watchman, the guy who's there throughout the night, and Jesus seems to be the watchman. And then he says that I am the good shepherd. I'm the protector. I'm the provider. And even, even in other places in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. So is he the shepherd or is he the lamb? Is he the night watchman or is he the shepherd that calls them out? Is he the one that lays in the path of the door all night long and protects the sheep? Or is he the one that calls them out and takes them to the pasture? And the answer to all of those is yes. Yes, he's every one of those. And that's the thing about metaphors in the Bible that we have to understand is that one person can be a whole lot of things. Now, that's not really hard for us to embrace because you could believe that about me, right? I, I'm a pastor. Uh, I am a shepherd within the flock of, of the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm a father, but I'm also uh, a, a teacher. Uh, I do a lot of different things, but yet I'm still one person. So the metaphors here about Jesus are helping us understand all of his characteristics. He is the one who protects. He is the one who leads out. He is the one who knows his sheep by name. He is the one that has their best interest in mind. He is the one who lays down his life for them. All of these things are true about him. And matter of fact, if you think about it, the evil that's presented to us in this passage as well also have multiple perspectives. Uh, if you think about it, the enemies of Jesus are thieves and robbers in one passage. They are wolves in another passage. They are hired hands in another passage. They're strangers and strange voices in another verse. So just know <clears throat> that the metaphors are meant to be flexible. And one person can be described by multiple metaphors. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who has the best interest of the sheep in mind. Jesus' enemies, they plot against the well-being of the sheep. They are there to use them for their own benefit. Okay? Now look at verse 16, which is an odd verse and one that's created a lot of controversy through the years. Verse 16 says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the reason this is controversial, because Mormons have embraced this passage. And they say, well, this is evidence. This is when Jesus is talking about leaving after his resurrection. And he went to North America and he spoke to the Native Americans. And he gave them some information that we don't necessarily have. Therefore, the Book of Mormon is a lot of that content. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. 
The problem with that is that's reading a whole lot into the text that the text says nothing of. And if you are a good student of Scripture, you don't read into the text. You let the text tell you what it says. And when the text just speaks to us clearly, we have one of just a couple of options. Um, Jesus is either talking about the Gentiles that are out there. So in other words, he hasn't gone to them yet, but one day he's going to bring them in and the Jews and Gentiles will be one flock. Hey, that's valid. We see that reiterated throughout Scripture. He could be even talking about, at this point in his ministry, Greek-speaking Jews versus the Jews that are there in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, in that area that his ministry has been taking place in, and he's still going to those who have been scattered because of the diaspora. Okay? So he could be talking about those. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Because um, the theme, the focus of what he's talking about is very clear. And that is this, that when... Jesus talks about those who are yet to be brought in, that there is this ministry of the kingdom of God that will consistently send people out to find those who still need to be brought in. And I think that's evidence when Jesus uh, rises from the dead, he spends some time with his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven. Before he ascends into heaven, before his ascension, he says to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach them the things that I taught you. What do you mean? Drawing them in. He's the good shepherd. He's the way to life. He is your provision. He is your protection. Teach them these things and bring them in. And so ultimately, the kingdom of God is about one flock. It's about those who are his sheep. No matter what they look like or where they're from, they hear his voice and they respond in kind by following him. It's very simple yet very profound. Look how it continues in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Okay, so notice that the relationship of Jesus and his sheep is first modeled by Jesus' relationship with his Father. Do you see that? The Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. Now that verse might seem a little bit confusing. Go back to verse 17. There we go. So this actually is a little bit confusing to us because we, as we read it in our English Bibles, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. It almost sounds like the reason God loves me is because I'm going to die, I'm going to give up my life. That's not what this verse is saying, because it almost sounds like the Father's love is contingent on whether Jesus is willing to give up his life or not. So in Greek, if you understand the Greek language, you understand that it doesn't work like English. We have subject, verb, direct object. Typically, it follows that pattern. In Greek, you can have the subject at the end of the sentence. You can have it at the beginning of the sentence. You can have it in different places. So the context of the sentence is really what tells you what's the subject, what's the verb, and what's the direct object. So with that being said, you can change that first part, and that actually makes a little more sense. The Father loves me for this reason I lay down my life. That actually makes more sense of what what he's saying there. The Father loves me. In other words, it's in the context of the Father's love, knowing that he has me, knowing that in, in this context, can we say, he is my shepherd. He's the one that's providing for me. He's the one that's protecting me. He's the one that's leading me. He's the one that has my best interest in mind. And because I trust the Father's love for that reason, I'm willing to lay down my life. 
Now, why would you do that, Jesus? Why would you say that? Here's why. Because Jesus understands it's not about the physical. It's about the spiritual. Jesus knows that he can lay down his life because he knows his father loves him. And he knows that his father would not allow him to die the physical death without a resurrection to an eternal life. And that becomes the model for all of us. If we truly trust the love of the Father, we can get to the point that no matter what crisis situation we find ourselves in, no matter how maligned we may be treated by someone else, no matter how many enemies come against us, we trust the love of the Father to the point that we're willing to lay down our lives. Why? Because we know that even if it cost us our life, it's not the end. Because that's never the end of the gospel story. That's why the gospel story becomes so huge for us is because it becomes about resurrection. See, verse 17 seems confusing, but when we flip that around, it makes a whole lot more sense because he said to us, the model of the father loving me becomes the model of how I love the sheep. And ultimately what happens is it becomes the way that we as sheep, as we extend the kingdom of God, the way we love others as well. The importance of understanding this is because that model of the father becomes the model of the son, which then becomes the model for his followers. I think at this point, we could be very easily reminded of John 3.16. Y'all ever heard that verse before? Familiar, sound familiar? Listen, listen again to what it says. Listen to the context. What, how is it contextualized from the very beginning? For God so what? So it's the love of the father. The love of the Father that he gave his only son, what does that mean? Sacrifice, death. That whoever believe in him should not perish, but have what? It never ends in death when it's the gospel. Death is never the end when the gospel story has its way. It always ends with life. It always ends in resurrection. But what happens is we buy into what all these false shepherds of our world keep telling us, and we think, if we don't find it here, we'll never get it. If I don't have it here, God's not good. If I don't have an abundant life here, God hasn't been a good shepherd. He hasn't been a good provider. He hasn't been a good father. If I struggle with an illness the rest of my life, God somehow isn't good. And that's because we bought a lie from one of the shepherds of this life that says your value, your worth comes from what you achieve in your lifetime right here. And the gospel speaks completely against that. So much so that he looks to a thief on the cross next to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise, enjoying the same reward as Abraham. He doesn't deserve that. None of us deserve that. But that's the gospel story. It doesn't end with death. It always comes to the point of life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's something beyond that sacrifice that was God's intention. Clearly, according to this verse, the whole sacrifice of Jesus that he willingly made is directly connected to, it's indicative of the Father's love, but that's not the focus of the gospel. Not even the most climactic part of the gospel. That is the resurrection. The resurrection was also God's intention from the very 
beginning. That was the heart of the gospel. We make such a big deal about the cross, and it should be, because that is our sins that are being paid for. That is the ultimate price that Jesus paid for us. What a grueling death he went through. But it doesn't end at the cross. That's why I don't like all the little crosses where Jesus is still on it. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not even in the grave anymore. He's risen. He's alive. And that resurrection is our hope. Because none of his promises that he made are true unless he can defeat the grave. And if he defeated the grave, then he is the true shepherd. He is the one who leads us out and leads us in. He is the one who protects us because he protects us for eternity. He protects us for something that is truly our existence from eternity and beyond. Look how he continues in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So I want you to pay very close attention to what's happening here. First of all, it seems that after every one of these feasts that Jesus goes through, that John walks us through, there's always a division at the end of what happens. We saw it with Passover. We've seen it with Tabernacles. We're seeing it again with the Feast of Dedication. Okay? Everyone, he presents this. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And at the end of it, there's a division on whether people are open to Jesus being the Messiah, or they are not. Secondly, some continue to think Jesus is dark and demented. Why do they think that? Because they are not willing to open their eyes and open their ears and hear what he's saying and to see what he's doing. They have preconceived ideas of who Jesus is, and nothing he does or says is going to change their mind. Then there are those who are open-minded. They are beginning to look at Jesus from a different angle. But notice that the ones who are beginning to believe, the ones who are at least open-minded, are beginning to do so, look at the verse, because they are listening. Did you see that? Look at what they said again. Others said, these are not the, what does it say? These are not the words. We're listening. We're hearing what he said. We're hearing the things that he's talking about. These are not the words. We're listening. What did the other one say? Go back to verse 20. Others said, these are not the, I mean, I'm sorry, 20. Uh, many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why, what? Why listen to him? Don't listen to him. Don't hear his words. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees of why they can't believe? You won't believe me because you won't listen. What did John say Jesus is from the very beginning? He is the word that has become flesh. If we are unwilling to listen, we will never believe. What did he say, the good shepherd? How do we recognize him? We recognize his voice. This is so important for us to embrace and understand. Pay close attention to what he's saying here, because this is so crucial to our following Jesus. Verse 21 again. These are not the words of one who is opposed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, they're beginning to see that Jesus' actions and Jesus' words are matching up. Jesus is doing things that are unexplainable unless somehow the blessing of God is following this person. The things that he is saying is not calling people to darkness, but it's calling people to light. If this is a demon or a demon-possessed person, the demon should be fired because he's doing really a bad job promoting the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death. 
He's actually going in the opposite direction. Now, I want to say one thing because I know a lot of times we can glorify the truth of who Jesus is at church without dealing with the very difficulties that life brings. So I want to address that at least for a moment to give you something to think about. I know a lot of people are going to walk away from this and they're going to think this. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then why am I, and you can just fill in that blank with whatever it is you're going through. If he's a protector, then why am I not protected? If he is the provider, then why am I not being provided for? If he's the one that fends off the evil one and keeps the wolves at bay, then why do I feel attacked by those wolves? If Jesus is this, then why am I going through this? Well, just as the father did not protect his son from the cross, so God never protects that we, or never presents to us that we will not be persecuted. He never promises us that we will never be downtrodden. He never promises us that we will not go through difficult crises in this life. What he does promise is what the gospel story promises, and that is that will never be the end of your story. Your story will never end with he lost. The story will never end with he's dead. The story will never end with evil defeated him as long as we trust God because in the end God meets out the justice in the end he writes all the wrongs in the end all promises are fulfilled in the end the book of revelation tells us there are no more tears there is no more sickness there is no more death because those who are called into the kingdom of heaven live for him in the presence of him forever and ever and ever and he will be their god and they will be his people and there will be no influence of sin there will be no influence of evil so in this life, the good shepherd doesn't mean that your best life is going to be lived out on this earth. What it does mean is no matter how dark it may get, he never leaves you. He never quits talking to you. He never quits fulfilling his promises. And ultimately, we will all die. We will all come to an end of this life or we will see Jesus return, one or the other. I mean, the statistics are pretty strong in that one out of every one person has died for the most part. Okay, so those are strong. So if that is a reality, that is a reality that we should be prepared for. My question to you is this. How are you preparing for that reality? What voice are you listening to? What are you following to find the directions through this life? There's only one good shepherd. There's only one way. It's Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we look forward to that picture of resurrection. Lord, even as we go through the Gospel of John and we see all the difficulty that you dealt with and all the opposition that came against you, Lord, we look forward to the end of this Gospel when we see death throw its strongest blow at you and you just walk away alive. Death can't hold you. Lord, that gives us so much hope in the darkness that we walk through and the difficulty that we walk through in the crisis situations. And Lord, what we want to do is just end this time that we've had to reflect on your goodness. And we want to confess and, and proclaim that you are the good shepherd. And Lord, we pray that we want to believe that with all that we are. Help our unbelief. And Lord, there's no fitting way to end a teaching that reminds us of the sacrifice that you've made for us than taking of the elements, the symbol of what you've done. 
when you were there with your disciples, you held that cup, and you blessed it, and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood that's spilled for you. Take it and drink it. And you broke the bread and said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take it and eat it and remember me. Remember my pain. Remember the suffering and remember the hope on the other side of this. Lord, as we come and we share these elements, we share in a greater story than our own. We share in a gospel story. We share in a story that remembers death, but we remember resurrection is the end of the story. And Lord, no matter what kind of darkness we may be walking through, no matter what kind of disease we may be battling, no matter what kind of difficulties we have in relationship or finances or whatever it may be, Lord, there are voices in this world that want to call us to question your goodness and question your character. And Lord, if we begin to do that, we have no other option but to find another shepherd to lead us. And there's only one genuine, true shepherd who has our best interest in mind. And that's you. So help us to deal with the questions and the doubts that we have. Help us to lean more heavily into your love and understanding your goodness in a way that is from your divine perspective and not our human temporal perspective. God, help us to situate ourselves in the center of your will so that no no matter what comes our way, we can be found faithful because of your faithfulness to us. May the way you, Father, have loved the Son, and may the way you, Jesus, have loved your sheep, may that continue in our stories in the way that we continue to love the world around us and the way we exemplify your gospel story. We love you, and we celebrate this with you. And we pray that you would receive the honor and the glory that's due to you through the receiving of these elements. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.